So let me just start by asking you uh, a couple of questions. Are we the people who believe that the creator of the universe, the king of the earth, the ruler of everything, the king above all kings is Jesus Christ? Great. Do we, uh, now let me ask you another question. Does Adelaide look like a city where Jesus Christ is the king? No. Okay, what about the world? Does our world look like the, a world that Jesus is the king of? No. Well, okay then, well, what does that mean for us then? What does that mean to be a people who maintain a hope and a faith that says Jesus is the king of the world, but the culture we live in is hostile towards the way we think and actually doesn't seem to reflect what we believe that Jesus is king? Welcome to Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> We're going to find out. Now, chapter 7 is a trans transition moment in the book. We've, we've gone from some things happening to people to actually something that probably weird best describes it. So let's do a quick recap. I've got a flow, flow diagram here of how Daniel's gone. So at top left, we've got Babylon invades Jerusalem. We've got those four guys there, um, Rakshak and Benny and Daniel. Uh, they're recruited to serve in, in Babylon, but we didn't read about that because that was in chapter one. Uh, we got to chapter two. We remember the tall statue made of gold, silver, bronze, clay. That, that was that dream that Daniel uh, interpreted for the king. Uh, we had good fun with that one. Uh, then chapter three, the fiery furnace, where we really starred uh, Rakshak and Benny. And we talked about, again, kingdoms of the earth and how kingdoms, anytime somebody comes up, they, they're corrupt and that they put themselves above God. Uh, chapter four and five was a story about two proud kings. We, we skipped that entirely, but I recommend you read it. Good story. Um, Chapter six, oh, I'm really sorry about that because it's Daniel and the lion's den. We've skipped that entirely. You know, every time you mention Daniel, you will think Daniel and the lion's den. Sorry, not this time. Um, <laughs> mainly because chapter six tells the same story as chapter three. It's just Daniel instead of Rakshak and Benny. Uh, but it's the same point. And, and you all got the point of chapter three. You all understood that perfectly and you're living it day to day. That's good to see. So, <laughs> so now we're up to chapter seven. And chapter seven... It parallels chapter two because it's another dream. Um, but it's a dream of Daniel's. And I don't know how well you can see the picture here, but it looks even weirder there than it does uh, in, from chapter two. Uh, and so th that's, that's where we've gone. We've got this, this whole story portraying these four characters as examples of the resistance to the empire of Babylon and its way of life and how it's a struggle, but they don't cloister themselves away and make a monastery in the desert. They work for the government, they speak the language, they have Babylonian fashion all over them, uh, and they're engaged in Babylon, but at the same time, they're walking that knife edge of faithfulness to the God of Israel. And so they're constantly being tested and challenged, and you know, life isn't good. You know, they think they're winning, and then they see the king of Babylon win another war and wipe out another people group, and there's violence and tragedy. And they all start to wonder how long Babylon is going to last. How long are the kingdoms of this world going to keep getting away with what they do? So just before we dive in, um, just so that you get a, a little bit of a picture from where I'm going, uh, I just want to show you a, a quick uh, animation of what chapter seven is all about. So turn your eyes to the screen.
chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. Hey, good story. Um, we're going to dive right in uh, because uh, it's a little more complicated than that. And uh, I, I want to just sort of get, give you the picture of, of some of the weird things that are going on. And so chapter 1, uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, so we've already moved on. Nebuchadnezzar's not the king anymore, it's his son Belshazzar. Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. Who knows what he'd eaten. He wrote down the dream and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beef, beef? I don't think it was beef, it was a lion. <laughs> With eagle's wings. Two competing football teams right there. Um, as I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with two hind feet on the ground like a human being and it was uh, given a human mind. So basically an AFL player. Um, <laughs> then I saw a second beast and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up to one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Nice. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back and had four heads. Doesn't look much like a leopard to me. Um, but great authority was given to this beast. And then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts. It had iron teeth for a start. And it had ten horns. Not a strange beast at all. And as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. And this little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. Talk about weird. I mean, what the... First of all, okay, it's a dream, right? It's not like he's been watching the Left Behind series on Foxtel. Um, it's just a dream, and it fits into the whole motif that runs throughout the Bible of people having symbolic dreams. I mean, think about you know, Pharaoh's dream in Genesis. He has a couple of dreams about sheaves of wheat and then about uh, animals, cows. Some are sick, some are healthy. So this whole idea of, of, of animals and dreams is not unusual in the Bible. And so... Early people who read the book of Daniel are nowhere near as weirded out as we are when they read it because it's sort of that they had their minds are used to this biblical visual imagination style. Uh, and for just as an example, uh, Isaiah describes the kingdom of Babylon coming to Jerusalem in, in chapter 5 in a similar way. 
He says, he will send a signal to distant nations far away and whistle to those at the ends of the earth. He's talking about Babylon here. He says, they will come racing toward Jerusalem. They will not get tired or stumble. They will not stop for rest or sleep. Not a belt will be loose, not a stand or step broken. Their arrows will be sharp and their bows ready for battle. It doesn't sound as though they're friendly. Sparks will fly from their horses' hooves and the wheels of their chariots will spin like a whirlwind. Bad news. Then he says, they will roar like lions, like the strongest of lions, growling. They will pounce on their victims and carry them off and no one will be there to rescue them. So it's, it's not a friendly visit. And so Isaiah describes Babylon attacking Jerusalem and taking people in exile with this image of a lion emerging out of the bushes roaring. And that's very common. There are probably at least 20 other passages in the prophets where the oppressed, oppressive, arrogant nations are described as wild beasts. Interestingly, the first beast Daniel saw was a lion. Um, I think he just had an experience with some of those, so that may have something to do with it. And there's this bear, bear and there's this, this weird deaf leopard thing. Um, and then there's this, this super beast. Um, he's not described as having features of any other kind of animal. He's sort of a, a, a mega beast with 10 horns growing out of his head. And so don't forget this is poetry. Now when you think of horns, it's not trumpets growing out of his head. Uh, it's not the brass section that suddenly got bigger than it should. These are animal horns. Uh, and it's used as an image of power in biblical poetry and, and, uh, and um, prophetic works. And it's a symbol of power and strength. Um, and uh, Psalm 75 uses the same sort of thing. It says, To the arrogant I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. And I've got to admit, if I'd read Psalm 75 without reading Daniel, I'd have thought, it was people lifting up horns to heaven and blowing their trumpets, but it's not. These are real horns they're talking about, um, and everybody's got them. Uh, verse 10 says, I'll cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. So even the righteous have horns. It's good to know. Um, so there's, there's lots of passages in the prophets where horns are used as an image of kings or powerful people. Um, so here we have a horn that raises itself up, speaks arrogantly against God, and what does God do to such horns? He gets out his hacksaw and he just saws them off. Um, but uh, he exalts the horns of the righteous. And so these are all images that Daniel grew up on in the Psalms and the prophets. And he has this really weird dream one night about how horrible Babylon is and how horrible the kingdoms of the world are. And he wonders how long they're going to last. And he has this dream about lions and bears and leopards and mega beasts and horns that speak defiantly. And some of you are sitting there thinking, why am I sitting here listening to this? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Things are going severely wrong in the world. Why am I interested in ten-horned megabeasts that uh, have some theological explanation? Well, I think one of the first things that we need to recognise, uh, despite its weirdness to us, is that Daniel chapter 7 was one of the most quoted scriptures by Jesus in his walk on earth. He was, he was obsessed with Daniel chapter 7. And if it's important for Jesus, then, hey, it might actually be important for us. And, and I mean, he quoted from it many times, and the title that he gave himself, because who knows, Jesus was the Messiah, but he never called himself the Messiah. The, the title he used for himself was Son of Man. And interestingly enough, he got that uh, phrase straight out of Daniel chapter 7. So if it's important to Jesus... 
there should be something that's important in it for us, so let's keep reading. Verse 9. I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And then the court began its session and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a while longer. And as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honour and sovereignty over all the nations of the world, so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal, it will never end, his kingdom will never be destroyed. You remember that particular scripture from something a few weeks back? Probably not, okay. Um, but okay, remember, what's the Hebrew word for humanity? Adam, we get the word Adam from. But this is actually written, so when it says son of man here, it's the same as son of Adam or a member of humanity. Except, of course, this part of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Uh, so do you know what the Aramaic word for humanity is? Adam. It's the same one. It's a trick question. Well done. Gold stars for those, those people who got that. So God's come to bring judgment and justice on the beast. He sentences the beast to destruction. But Daniel sees there's a human one amongst them. And this human one approaches the Ancient of Days on the cloud, is led into his presence, and he's given this authority, glory, and power. Um, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, and, that, and that's the dream that Daniel's had. Uh, so what, what does it mean? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because that's exactly what Daniel asked. Because um, you know, we've discovered that he, he actually doesn't know what it means. He's terrified and horrified about what he's seen. And so he does the sensible thing. Um, obviously not a, a modern male. He asks for directions. Um, he says in verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen and my visions terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. He explained it to me like this. These four beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. Well, there's no surprises there because we've just learnt that one of the most common ways to describe kings and kingdoms in poetic and prophetic scripture is with horns and wild beasts. So if the beast and the horns represent kings and kingdoms, what's with the human one? What does the son of man represent? Because obviously he's a symbol in the vision as well. Well, in verse 18, of course, we've just discovered the son of man represents God's holy people. Now, I know what you're thinking. Your radar went up and you, you, you looked at that and you said, no, 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 that's Jesus. Surely everything you're describing there, that, that's, that's Jesus. Well, good instinct. It means that whoever taught you in Sunday school has done really well. Your, your sort of instinct is the first answer to every, it's Jesus. Whatever question you're asked, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. Um, but in this case, um, it's incorrect. It's a, well, it's not incorrect. It's just a little more complicated. Um, 
It's God's chosen people in this instant, but we're going to revisit that in a bit so, so that we can explain that. So it's God's holy people that have been trampled and persecuted by the beast, but God is going to sentence the beast to destruction and exalt his holy people to sit at the right hand to rule the world. Now, can you think of a, a book in the Bible that tells the story of God's holy people who are trampled and being persecuted by a beast? Oh, yes. Daniel. Good point. And so... Over the last couple of weeks, we've been reading stories about God's people getting trampled on and devoured by the beast. And in fact, you know, I, I mentioned the last chapter is all about Daniel being thrown into a den of, of uh, lions to be trampled by them, even though he wasn't. Um, and so the whole book of Daniel is this example story of what God's people have been through throughout their history and how they live as a persecuted minority. And Daniel's sitting there wondering how long this is going to last. And so he's had this dream about Babylon and the train of oppressive human kingdoms that come from it and discovered, uh, to his satisfaction, that it's not going to last forever. There's coming a day of justice where God will destroy the beast and he'll rescue and vindicate his people and they will share in his rule over the world. So that's what this dream is about. But Daniel is still, of course, as hopefully we are, weirded out by this horn. Um, this, it's a talking horn with eyes I mean I'm weirded out too so let's look where he goes next verse 19 then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast the one so different from the others and so terrifying it had devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws trampling their remains beneath its feet I also asked good on him about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterwards and destroyed three of the other horns this horn had seemed greater than the others and it had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. As I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them until the Ancient One, the Most High, came and judged in favour of his holy people. And then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. Then he said to me, this fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth. It will be different from all the others it will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its past. Its ten horns are ten kings who will rule that empire. Then another king will arise, different from the other ten, who will subdue three of them. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time. Great song title, eh? We'll get Jord to get onto that one. Uh, it's, a, it's a very cryptic way, I think, of referring to a set period of time. And we'll, we'll discuss what it might mean in a, in a moment. But in verse 26, it says, Then the court will pass judgment, and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey him. That was the end of the vision. I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts and my face was pale with fear, but I kept these things to myself. So there you have it. There's Daniel's bad dream. Uh, Daniel's reassured that his people aren't going to be trampled by the beast forever, that God's aware of what's going on and there's a set time when he's going to come and bring justice and rescue his holy people and sentence the beast to destruction. So if you're Daniel, this is a weird but interesting form of good news. This is good to hear. Uh, but you've got to ask, is this, is this dream good news for us? 
Yes, is the answer. Um, but the, the, uh, and I noticed that some of you are a bit reluctant with that. It is? <laughs> really? And, and that leads to the question, why is it good news for us? And so just before I get into that, I, I want to address uh, the elephant in the room, one, another beast we haven't mentioned, um, that th this is all uh, very prophetic. And th there are libraries and libraries of books that have been written on the debate about what Daniel chapter 7 actually means, who these kingdoms are, what they're referring to. And, uh, and so I think we need to touch on that because there are lots of really smart, respected theologians who think that this king and all these events refer to something that happened about 150 years before Jesus. The four kingdoms referred to are Babylon, Persia, Greece and Syria uh, and, and a particular nasty Syrian king called uh, Antiochus who conquered Jerusalem made it illegal to practice Judaism in the city of Jerusalem and started murdering Jews in the temple courtyard. Uh, it was probably the most intense persecution the Jewish people ever experienced in their own city and their own temple. But then there are a good number of really smart, respected theologians who believe this refers to the Roman Empire sacking of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. But there are also lots of really smart, respected theologians who think that it refers to something that hasn't happened yet, even from our perspective. But rather, this is describing a series of events that's going to happen in Jerusalem when Jesus returns. Jesus' return is going to be led up to by the appearance of a king called the Antichrist. And there's going to be a new temple in Jerusalem and there's all this persecution, horrible things going on. And uh, if you've read the Left Behind series of books, that's basically what's going on with that particular camp. So which, one, which one's right? People use that cryptic timeline in Daniel to support various arguments. But the thing is, for any of those camps, they have to do what's called theological fudging. In other words, that timeline doesn't exactly fit any of those. Some bits fit some, some bits fit the other, some bits it's sort of wavy in between. And, and people make arguments to say, well, th this is right, um, and this one, and the others are all wrong. But I, I think our most important indicator, if we're going to decide what we're going to believe about this, is to look at... Uh, what did Jesus think? Because I've talked about the fact Jesus was obsessed with Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus has got to have some form of opinion on this. And although, you know, if you read through the New Testament, Jesus doesn't say, oh, by the way, my opinion on Daniel 7 is. We can see from his actions what he actually thinks about Daniel chapter 7. And so, first of all, we know that he chose his title, Son of Man, from it, which is actually significant. Um, and I'll just give you one example in the New Testament that, that I think adds to this. Um, who remembers that Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's taken by the soldiers. Where's he taken to first? Who can remember? Jewish guy, high priest, Caiaphas's house. And, and if we look, uh, now, okay, everybody just take a deep breath. Out again. Right, we're in the New Testament now. Right, Matthew 26, 57. Because it's different from Daniel. This isn't quite as weird. Uh, the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. So who's the most powerful person in Jerusalem at this time? It's Caiaphas, the high priest. And it's all the elders, all the Bible scholars, all the leaders of the temple have gathered and Jesus stands before them. And these people are knowingly going to execute Jesus for reasons they know are not legitimate. And in verse 62 says, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? 
But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So he's basically saying, swear on the Bible that you're the Messiah. And Jesus' answer seems quite cryptic to us. He says, you've said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. What the? You sort of think, well, why didn't you say yes or no? But what he actually does here is, is very powerful. Let, let, me paint, let me paint you a picture. Imagine this is a Star Wars convention. Now, I'm pretty sure that, even though it isn't, I'm pretty sure this is going to work. Now, imagine I walk into this Star Wars convention and I, I walk up to Nathan, Star Wars. <laughs> Not Star Trek. Well, I'd probably work there as well. And I walk up to, to Nathan and I've got a black helmet on. I'm carrying a red lightsaber. And I say in a raspy voice, You are my son. Who am I? Darth Vader. Who's he? Luke Skywalker. Now, did I have to explain that to anybody at a Star Wars convention? Did I have to... Did, would anybody say, Oh, what film's that from? <laughs> Who are you? Why are you waving that lightsaber? What, what did you say? People know without having explained to them exactly where in the movie that is, who it is, who the, who, the, who the participants are, without anybody saying a word. And Jesus here is actually in the same place. He is in a room full of Bible nerds. Not Star Wars nerds, Bible nerds. But they, even better, these Bible nerds don't just read the Bible, they have memorised the Bible. Now remember their Bible is the Old Testament. So he has come to them and he has done exactly what I did to Nathan. He has gone up to Caiaphas and he has spoken those words out of Daniel 7. And the implication of him saying those words means he's taking on the role of what character in Daniel 7? The son of man. And if he's the son of man and he's spoken these words to Caiaphas, who is he saying Caiaphas is? The beast. And so Caiaphas is notably ticked. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it says in verse 65, the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror. I mean, he said that he thought Jesus was blaspheming, but he actually knew what Jesus was saying. He was saying, hey, you said it. I'm the son of man. And basically, if I believe that that's my role, then your role is the beast. And Jesus basically called everybody in the room the mega beast, just in that sentence. And it was like a Star Wars convention. They didn't have to have it explained to him. They knew exactly what he was saying and why he was saying it. And so in Jesus' mind, this super mega horned beast doesn't refer to something that happened only 100 years before him. And it doesn't only refer to something that will happen thousands of years after him. The, the, the mega super horned beast thing is, is like a set of clothes. It's something that humans and human kingdoms put on and become. It's what you call an archetype. So in Jesus' mind, Daniel 7 isn't just a reference to one event. It's a way of thinking about human history. When humans define good and evil for themselves and declare themselves to be God, and when they make their desires and their impulses and appetites divine, and they give their allegiance and their lives to them, the tragic irony is that from a Bible point of view, human beings become beasts. And so Jesus 
looks at the holy people of God who are called out of the nations and called to become the truly human ones. And he looks at the high priest of Israel, their government, their temple. And, you know, and these guys are about to murder Jesus for healing people and preaching good news to the poor. And so what does he call them all? Beasts. Jesus is here to conquer the beast. And this is what Daniel's dream is all about. It's all about how God is going to judge and destroy the beast and exalt the truly human one to share in his rule over the world. And so how does the beast get conquered? Well, Jesus is going to conquer the beast by letting the beast conquer him. Because beasts only have one weapon, or two weapons, teeth and fangs. And guess what? Teeth and fangs can kill you. But from Jesus' point of view, he embodies the life-giving love of the creator that is more powerful than the beast. So from Jesus' point of view and Daniel and his friend's point of view, they can look at the beast and say to it, all you can do is kill me. However, your ability to kill me can never separate me from the love and the covenant commitment of God. And so Jesus goes to his death with the confidence that his death is actually the way of overcoming the beast. And that's how Jesus read and understood Daniel chapter 7. And that's what Jesus sees himself doing as he dies on the cross. It's letting the beast do its worst so that he can die on behalf of the beast. Have you thought about that? He died so that beasts like you and me can be transformed by the love of God to truly become human. Now I know, this, remember this is a strange dream. I understand that. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know what this is talking about. We're talking about these moments where you and I give in to the beastly impulses inside of us. A mature human being who's full of the Spirit of God is a human being who can control their impulses and actually live for the benefit of other people. But none of us actually do that perfectly. Most of us actually don't do it very well at all. And so Jesus comes as the human one, the son of man, to be for us what we could never be for ourselves. He becomes what we are so that we can become what he is. So I don't know how this sits with you. I don't know what your week was like. You may have had a good week. You may have had a bad week. You may have dreamed something even weirder last night. I don't know. But I encourage you, as we go out into the world this week, to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate inside of you the impulses of the beast that remain. And you need to work out what it's going to take through the love and the faithfulness of Jesus in your life to kill off that beast so that we can become, as Jesus intended, the truly human ones. Please stand. We've gone quite a bit over time this morning. I apologise for that. But I think you know, even weird stories like this dream of Daniel's can have really important home truths for us. We don't live in a perfect world. But to be fair, we're not perfect people. But the great thing is we know someone who is. And he, his revolutionary way of destroying the beast by letting the beast kill him gives us the hope that we don't actually have to sacrifice our lives 
to be godly people because Jesus has already done that. All we have to do is accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and accept that His sacrifice, His, His conquering of the beast was for us. We are the beast. You know, what's that saying? I've seen the enemy and it's me. <laughs> but we don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to go through what Jesus did because He's already done it. But we have to accept the fact that in doing that, we actually have to release that to Him. We can't kill the beast. We actually have to let God do it. Our biggest struggle is not actually the fight, it's the surrender. The recognition that we are not clever enough, strong enough, intelligent enough, whatever it is, to actually destroy that beast, those impulses on our own. We actually need God to do it. And so this morning, I thought it would be a good idea if, if we just laid down our life afresh on the altar to acknowledge that Jesus died for the beast in us. And you know, I, I know that it probably makes some of you a bit uncomfortable. We don't like to think of ourselves as beasts. It's really demeaning and, and degrading. Um, but you know, it's those impulses and, and don't forget this is, this is symbolic I don't really think you're a, a pack of wolves or, and Jesus doesn't see us that way either you know, we're not marauding wildebeest or, or anything like this but there's a part of us which is not congruent with the truly human one that Jesus is and Jesus' presence in our life is all that it takes to remove that incongruent part of us that is the beast. But we need to constantly remind ourselves, I think. And so I'd, I'd like you, just as we close, to pray after me a prayer of salvation, just to remind ourselves of our allegiance to God. Or you may be here and you, you've never actually given your allegiance to God. And so I, I encourage you to take this prayer as the first step in a, in a journey with Jesus as, as your Lord and Saviour to actually banish the beast from your life, to take on something that you cannot do on your, in your own strength, but you can lean on God to actually take that from you. So can you repeat after me? Dear Lord Jesus, today afresh I give my life to you. I repent of all my sins of all my shortcomings, of all my doubts and fears. I place my life in your hands. I proclaim you Lord and Saviour above all others. I reject the devil and all his plans. I acknowledge that I am a child of God and you are my Father and my friend and I thank you that I can rely and trust and have faith in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.